Welcome to the SAPTA podcast. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Have you ever stopped to think about your bias? In ways big and small, we all express bias, but it's up to us to meet our bias with empathy, awareness, and inclusivity in mind. In today's discussion, we'll talk about these themes and more with physical therapist and educator Brian Wilkinson, who is a professor at Pacific University in Hillsborough, Oregon. So for listeners, Brian wrote an APTA Perspectives blog post for us a few weeks ago, where he talked about inclusion within physical therapy education. You can find that article on APTA.org using the website search tool, and we'll make sure the link is on the podcast episode show page. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Brian, before we jump into this conversation, I'd like for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, thanks, Amelia. It's really a tremendous honor to be here uh, as a guest on your podcast. So thank you very much for that. Um, I am Brian Wilkinson. I've been a physical therapist for just over 15 years. Um, In my career, I've had the great privilege to work in lots of different practice settings. I've spent time in acute care, in inpatient rehab, in skilled nursing, and then more recently in outpatient PT practice. Uh, Clinically, I am a certified hand therapist I'm a certified lymphatic therapist, and uh, obviously more recently, I now am core faculty or full-time faculty in the DPT program at Pacific University in Hillsboro, Oregon, which is just outside of Portland. Um, As part of my introduction, I also just wanted to share something full disclosure that as far as the themes and and discussion points we're going to talk about today, I am by no means an expert in these areas. So I don't consider myself an expert on cultural competency or issues around diversity. But one of the things I think is really important that I want to share with listeners out there is that I'm on the journey. And so I'm actively seeking to learn and grow in my ability to be sound in areas related to cultural competence, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so um, I think that's something that I really want to make sure I model to other people through this and through other outlets um, as part of my professional contributions. Well, that's great. So welcome uh, to the podcast. And I'll say uh, on top of what you just said about your disclaimer, uh, that APTA has a ton of resources around DE&I. Uh, if you just go to APTA.org uh, and type in DE&I in the search, search bar, there's, there's a ton of resources, uh, conversations like this, articles, things like that. So feel free to check those out. So Brian, within your APTA Perspectives blog post, you talked a good bit about a specific instance you had in your classroom related to a presentation, I believe. And I'll stop there so you can uh, tell the whole story to our listeners. Yeah, thanks. It's actually a pretty interesting story, I think, um, particularly for those people who are listening who might have been involved in education um, in the past as a, as a professional. Um, so basically, I, so I just want to say to everyone, I've been a, in PT education now. This is my 13th year. I spent six years teaching in a PTA program and then transitioned to teach at the DPT level. Uh, this is my seventh year now. So I've been involved in PT education for quite a while. And I mean, I've obviously had lots of unique experiences, um, but this was really a particularly special um, instance that I think just really, um, it really kind of took me out of the comfort that I've established as a long-term educator and really caused me to reevaluate 
a very important aspect of my teaching, which I'll talk about. So basically what happened was I was giving a lecture and this was not the first time I had given this same lecture. This was a lecture that I was giving on um, uh, thermal modalities in our physical agents course. And I was talking about different things, you know, as standard as an ice pack to a hot pack, to a paraffin bath, to a laser, to things like that. So talking about different thermal agents in class, this was a two hour presentation that I gave to our 50 first year DPT students. And basically lecture went, you know, pretty much as it normally does. I gave the presentation. I took a couple of standard questions um, throughout the presentation at the end and then class ended. And I believe my recollection is that class ended just before their lunch break. So these 50 first year students finished class and then we all kind of left and I went to my office and they went to lunch. Well, not surprisingly, this um, alert from a student came in the form of an email. And I think we can all appreciate why, but basically the email in summary said, uh, hello, Dr. Wilkinson. I just wanted to point out that in watching your lecture earlier today, I'm not sure if you noticed it, but in all of the photos you used to provide examples of the different modalities that you were describing, all of the, the individuals in those photos were light-skinned individuals. And so I basically emailed her back and I said, I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. Can you kind of elaborate on your concerns, even though I kind of had an idea but basically, I wasn't surprised that she emailed me to bring that to my attention because can you imagine being a first year graduate student and going up to one of your faculty members and essentially accusing them of being biased in some way? Hey, I noticed that you have a really obvious source of bias. You know, so I wasn't surprised that she brought it to me in an email, but I was just, as soon as I received it and we kind of discussed it and unpacked it more, I felt very convicted almost immediately that because I had not done that maliciously. But what happens normally in education is because we don't have time to go out and take original examples of patients receiving a cold pack and or getting a paraffin bath and going through all the trouble of getting separate permission from those individuals to use their photography uh, and their likeness in educational ways. Um, we often go online and we use examples that are already readily available and then we simply just provide the citation to give credit to whoever created and fabricated that image. So I had basically just been using images that were readily available. And so in that case, most of the examples that came up on my internet search happened to be people who were light skinned. Um, and so basically once the student Nancy brought this to my attention, I felt very convicted. And she basically said, you know, no hard feelings. I'm sure you didn't do it maliciously, but I highly recommend that you consider making some changes so that the visual representation that you're sharing with class is kind of more reflective of people that we would see when we're out in the clinic. And so, of course, I decided to go back because I didn't want to forget when I did this presentation another year later, as I do each year. And I so I went back online and I started looking at different photos of the different modalities being displayed um, that were readily available already online. And one of the things that I think was so astounding was that I had to just for, I started with paraffin bath as a, a photo I wanted to update. I had to go through over 300 photos when I typed in paraffin bath in the search engine, I had to go over 300 just to find one example 
And it wasn't even that good of an example of someone who had skin that wasn't light, that was representative of someone who we might encounter in the clinic. And so I was just really surprised by that. And so when I sh shared that with the student who brought it to my attention that, hey, I know I didn't do this on, on purpose, but then also look at how much extra trouble I had to go to just to fulfill what you actually pointed out as something I should have been doing. I was surprised at how much extra effort it took just to achieve that element of that small element of diversity in my classroom environment. And so that's what kind of inspired us to say, hey, we should write this up. We should share this with, and we didn't really have a goal in mind of who to share it with, but we decided to write it up. Um, that incident happened in January, 2021. We kind of brainstormed during the middle of the busy semester in the spring, and we started writing it up in April, I believe. And so just, you know, kind of decided to write out our story, which it basically was, it was our story and, and started sending it out and wanted to share it with as many people as we could. So being able to feature it here um, on these APTA platforms is just really, really wonderful. And we hope that the message is something that other people can appreciate and, and use to see as an opportunity to improve their educational experience, whether they're on the side of being an educator or on the side of being a student. Well, that is quite the story. And, and I will say when I read your blog post, initially my thought was, this is a pretty simplistic example to then you know bring about such a large theme, a large conversation or a large uh, discussion to have. And so I'm, I too am glad we're having this conversation, but um, I guess that kind of leads me into my, my next question for you. And within the blog post, you explained that the student, I believe her name is Nancy, um, she didn't intend to just bring this to your attention. She wanted change to happen, right? Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think there were really kind of two levels where I think she really, really felt the necessity for change. Obviously, the, the smaller aspect of change was that she felt like, particularly in my section of lecture for that particular class, she thought, she felt very strongly, and this was just based on her experience going out and getting observation hours prior to being admitted into our graduate school um, program. Because she had, we, we hadn't sent any of the members of her class out on any clinical rotations yet, but she already had some experience being in the clinic. And she felt strongly that the way that I was sharing the material, which was related to her future patient care was not reflective of the people that we were gonna send her out, her and her peers out to serve. So I think obviously the first and obvious aspect of change that Nancy was endorsing was for me to modify just the images in my lecture and to make physical agents as a class more reflective of the diverse patient populations that we serve. Then at another level, I think she um, was really interested in considering that after we had more of a discussion about it, that it didn't seem specific to just physical agents or just physical therapy, that there was actually a bigger issue that when we look at people involved like stakeholders, people who manufacture equipment, people who uh, create advertisements for equipment, as we would see in a physical agents class, those people also have uh, an opportunity to do better in how they create images that convey 
the diverse patient populations that every clinician sees out in the clinic. So I think she, we started as seeing it kind of in a pigeonholed way of this class could reflect diversity of who we see out in the clinic a lot better. But then also, as we looked more for specific images to inflict that class and put diversity in it, we realized that we weren't, you know, it wasn't really just specific to me that there was an opportunity for marketing people and other stakeholders to do a, a greater part on, to do a greater job on their part as well. Nancy, if you're listening, I think it's wonderful that you spoke up, right? I feel like a lot of students and or PTAs or PTAs would sit through a presentation and maybe they might have this thought, but to actually like go to that next step and like voicing that um, is, is a big deal, you know? I'll also say too, like to your, to your anecdote about the th going through 300 images before finding one diverse one is it takes effort. And I think so much of this, whether it's just understanding elements of DE&I or hearing people, like you said, being curious and stuff, it just requires effort. And I think that's just something that people have to be understanding of and okay with. No, so I actually have a really interesting analogy for that. I'm glad you brought that up, if I can share it. So one of the things that I think is a great analogy that a lot of people will be able to connect to is evidence-based practice, right? Evidence-based practice, you know, is this buzz, you know, buzz term, something that is becoming, you know, it's been a hot topic in physical therapy as a profession for a long time. So, but here's the thing about evidence-based practice. While most people understand the inherent value of evidence, evidence-based practice, right, it incorporates all these different things, patient preferences, current evidence, clinician skill. There is nothing that says evidence-based practice must be used with every patient that we see, right? It would be easy, just as easy for a patient, uh, for a clinical provider to not use evidence-based practice and do something that they thought might either make the patient feel better temporarily or that may not give them the best long-term benefit, right? So it's not a requirement, but it's all about holding ourselves to a higher standard saying, I'm gonna put in the extra effort. I'm gonna read the, the best articles. I'm gonna to continue to be current with evidence that's available to me so that I can provide the best care for my patients and make sure they get better in the long run. It's very similar here that it, it would be very simple and very easy to just use whatever is readily available and easiest to find online for these class presentations, right? But when I go out of my way, when I hold myself to that high standard to make sure that my, my students are represented, all of my students and all of the patients that these people will one day see are represented, again, I think that makes a difference. I know it's harder work and it's not a requirement, but again, it's about holding yourself to the highest standard possible and doing your best to equip these people to be prepared to work with everyone that they meet one day, not just most. So I guess my next question for you, again, thinking more narrowly, is why is something as simple as having a diverse population in a classroom PowerPoint presentation uh, so important in education for future PTs and PTAs? And how do you think a simple example like this would translate, if done right, translate into quality care for future professionals? Yeah, that's a really powerful question. 
I'll try my very best to answer it. Um, yeah, so I would say, you know, in thinking about that question, the thing that comes to my mind immediately, right? So I was teaching this information to a first year student population, people who are very early in their career, they're emerging as professionals, they're very impressionable, and literally everything they're learning is hoping to translate to what they will eventually use and need in their clinical rotations and then when they go out into autonomous practice. So one of the things that come, comes to mind immediately, if we're thinking big picture, is as a profession, we have a very clearly delineated code of ethics that have been established. And so if you look at the principles of our code of ethics in physical therapy, the very first principle of our code of ethics is that physical therapists shall respect the inherent dignity and rights of all individuals. And when you read the actual code of ethics document, the list of different uh, characteristics is pretty exhaustive in terms of who we have a right to respect and also serve. And so I guess big picture as an educator and as a physical therapist, I think about that, that our, our governing body for PT and also for PT education, its first principle of ethics is that we have um, an obligation, a duty to not only respect, but to serve people of diverse populations. And so I guess you could say that in essence, by using educational materials for graduate PT students and PTAs for that matter, we are honoring our code of ethics, um, which comes from the highest uh, level of administration within our organization. Now, as an educator, the other thing that I think is important is you use the word translate. So how do what we discuss in class, in lab, how does it help translate quality care to these you know, emerging professionals? Well, I feel like cultural competency is a skill that translates just like anything else. So I'll give you another example from, from teaching because I think people can relate to this probably a little bit better. So I also teach a course on um, a lab on uh, in biomechanics, which in which we practice range of motion, manual muscle testing and palpation um, as a skill set for our first year students. So same group of students in which Nancy would have been a part of, but a different course altogether. One of the things that's difficult in that class that I hope will translate to clinical practice is uh, we practice explicitly getting consent from our patients before we do certain techniques or assessments around the pelvis and lower back, right? Because that's a sensitive area. And so what we do in class is we explicitly, repeatedly practice, how do we get consent? How do we explain to someone what we're doing and why we need to do it in that area of their body? And we practice getting their consent and understanding before we actually do it. And we practice it in class in our laboratory settings in a safe place where people can make mistakes and really polish that skill because we hope that when it comes time to do it with a, with a stranger, with a patient, that it's less awkward and they can execute it well. So similarly to any other skill like learning consent or anything else, I think it's important to practice and model cultural competency as part of being in our profession as a skill that will translate just as well as anything else to working in the clinical setting. 
So that's kind of, those are my thoughts related to something as quote unquote simple as changing a PowerPoint in one class and creating and modeling um, an atmosphere of diversity in, in your class can help translate just like most other things to what the students will apply one day when they're out in the clinic. And now for a quick break. Let's cap off our centennial year by joining APTA, association components, and individual members in a special 100 Days of Service initiative. Coming this September, join us from wherever you are to participate in 100 Days of Service, an APTA initiative aimed at highlighting a value built into the profession's DNA, commitment to communities. To learn more, visit centennial.apta.org. And now let's return to the show. Uh, now kind of switching gears and thinking about your colleagues, your PTE and PTA educator colleagues. So, um, and I don't know if, if you, if, if at your university, you've done any kind of, um, I want to say, uh, kind of trainings or anything since this instance happened uh, that you described, but is there anything that you guys have uh, whether on your staff or if you've talked to other educators about, about assessing bias and then alleviating any of those shortcomings? Yeah, no. Well, I have to say full disclosure that I did write most of this article while I was out on fraternity leave. So, and now I'm just back on campus. So I would be surprised if many of my immediate colleagues in my department knew that I was writing and trying to disseminate this article. So I'm sure most of them are going to be finding out about it for the first time here now this fall. But I just want to say that generally um, working in higher education, I'm really fortunate that I work in an environment where we're pretty progressive when it comes to cultural competency and facilitating um, in an environment where diversity, equity and inclusion are very highly valued. So some of the examples at my institution that I would just like to highlight that I think are really um, interesting and relevant. So within my department, the physical therapy program here at Pacific University, about three years ago, um, there were several students who identified with minority groups. They decided to create a novel student organization called The Collective. And The Collective was essentially, is essentially a thriving organization that again, students have established and maintained over now, I think three school years. And basically it's a, an opportunity for uh, diversity to be promoted within our, um, specifically within our department, but then also to use it as a platform to create a voice uh, at the college level, at the university level, and then also as a beacon to our profession and how we can make it more diverse. But it's really neat that it's student led. So. This student group, again, is pretty early. They have bylaws established. They have officers established. And they meet a couple of times per semester. But they really get into the weeds on difficult topics and how to help um, peers, faculty, staff be more comfortable and competent in these areas related to diversity. So having that as a resource here in our program has been really special. I'm personally not you know, directly involved. I've attended some some events, but just that is something that I think is really cool to have as a feature for our program. And I think it really helps highlight the value and need for us to be more aware and competent around those issues um, as part of the PT profession. The other thing that's kind of unique at Pacific University 
is our physical therapy program is part of a college of health professions in which I believe there are 14 or 15 other healthcare uh, training programs, so different disciplines being represented. And so we have these different disciplines from each program with different students. And two things that I think have been really uh, interesting at the college level is as faculty, um, this is not something that administrators kind of mandated, but as faculty about two years ago, we established a college diversity committee. And so again, this is only about two years old. We just approved our bylaws, but this is basically a collection of faculty across multiple disciplines. Um, there are officers and basically we meet a couple times a semester to talk about how we can make our, our college and individual programs uh, more inclusive and how we can as a faculty promote our university and our institution as a safe place for everybody. Um, I know that they're still kind of getting started the pandemic kind of limited their momentum but you know they're at the point now where they're doing some small things. They have a scholarship fund established for students in need and I know that they are working on hosting more events as things improve out in the world. And then the other thing that's really, really awesome at Pacific University as a college, any student who is enrolled in any of the disciplines within our college at Pacific, in order to get their degree from our college, um, every student must take and pass a course called interprofessional competence. It's a four week class. I think it's like eight contact hours. And one of the main themes of this course that's required for every student to get a degree is to talk about different types of bias. And so you have these different sections and every, pretty much every discipline is represented in each section. So you have a few students from PT, a few from OT, a few from pharmacy, a few from PA, dental hygiene, et cetera. So you have this mixture of students from different disciplines and together they talk about how bias can impact their care in their individual work in different disciplines. But then as they start to collaborate within the interdisciplinary team, how bias can affect their ability to provide the best holistic care to their future patients. So I guess what I'm saying is in summary, I think in higher education, we're really lucky that generally a lot of academic institutions are pretty progressive when it comes to really advancing um, issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like for example, here at Pacific, we literally have a dedicated position at our administrative level who is our officer for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I don't, I know that not every organization has that um, resource available to them, but I do think that um, what I'm trying to say is for the professionals that are coming up now and those that will come in the future, I think there, there are more and more things available to them that they're being exposed to at their formative years uh, in the profession during their education that, that they're gonna take out and share with the, the clinical world. And I think it's going to kind of have a trickle down effect and we're going to see more and more clinicians being more competent in this area as time goes on. So uh, any tips for educators or professionals, so PTs or PTAs who are out there just in the clinic um, on how to address bias or, or at least identify bias and then create community that's inclusive. Absolutely. I have tips for, for all these people. 
Yeah, so I would say generally, regardless of where you practice or work, whether you're a student or a professional, I think the number one thing that I would say generally that would aid you in your journey when you're on it is to just stay curious. I think one of the things that's benefited me the most, and again, I don't have any formal education or training on diversity. A lot of mine has been kind of piecemeal over time, doing different trainings and workshops, reading things on my own. But I think one of the things that is so powerful is just being curious, being inquiry-based, and above all else, listening a lot more than you speak. And if you can just do that, I think that brings a lot of perspective to anybody, at least as a portion of their journey in being more competent in this area. Um, if you're a clinician out there practicing, I think one of, the, one of the things I would suggest to you if you're interested in going on this journey or advancing your journey, typically most clinicians, if you're working at some full-time level or more, um, your employer will help subsidize a portion of your continuing education on an annual basis. So one of the things I would suggest, this is an awesome, uh, an awesome time for us to seize opportunities. There are more opportunities now than I think ever before in my 15 year career. And I would suggest that, you know, instead of taking a workshop on something that you may be doing on a routine basis, something related to your specialty area of practice, maybe this is the year where you say, I'm gonna take my continuing education budget allotment and I'm gonna invest it in taking a class specifically related to enhancing my cultural competency. This is an opportunity where I'm gonna, instead of going to a conference related to my specialty area of practice, I'm gonna to go to one that's focused on enhancing my cultural competency and uh, diversity awareness. And there are online platforms, there are different seminars um, that you can uh, find quite easily. Um, our profession is obviously quite large. So there are a lot of people doing it, but I would say if you're a clinician and we all have to do, some type of continuing education to maintain our license. So I think this is a great opportunity to say this year, this time, one small thing I'm going to do is I'm going to do at least some of my continuing education hours or set aside a small amount of my continuing education budget and I'm going to invest it in that particular area of my professional growth. If you're an educator, as I am, particularly those people listening who might be full-time educators, I think we have a, a really important obligation to admit when we are so engrossed in our academic endeavors. Um, in a lot of cases, people like me in my role, they're so busy doing all their other things, their service, their scholarship, their teaching, their advising, all those things. A lot of times full-time faculty don't have time to go out and practice anymore. And so we can easily get out of touch with what's going out, going on out in the clinic at a local and a regional and a national level. And so I think we have to really infuse intentionality in staying in touch with what's going on, the trends and how um, our patient needs are evolving. And I think we have a, a really important duty to, to connect with colleagues or students who are going, who are still going out to the clinic and staying informed on how our needs needs for patients are changing and what types of populations are being represented because as again as educators working with people in their formative years we want to help prepare those students and equip them so that when they do go out to the clinic they're as well prepared as possible 
to help everyone that they meet because we can't control which patients will have. So we, we have a really important obligation to prepare students to help anyone that they may encounter, right? It's no longer as simple as we're gonna make sure that you're able to consistently help someone who has a grade two ankle sprain. Now it's, we need to prepare you to work as well as possible to help heal someone in a timely and effective way using proper evidence to heal that patient with the grade two ankle sprain, but who may also be from a different culture who has different expectations and beliefs about how healing should be facilitated. And their pain experience may be totally different than what we're accustomed to or what we're used to experiencing as individuals. So I think as educators, it's really easy to be in our bubble, but I think it's important to do something intentional to reconnect with what's going out on in what's going on out in the clinic. It could be having conversations with peers. It could be something as simple as surveying students after they go out on all their clinical rotations before they graduate to say, did we prepare you enough to be culturally competent with those patients that you worked with when you went out to your different clinical rotations in those different practice settings? So again, I don't think it has to be anything monumental, but I think there are a lot of small things that we can do to, again, get people further along on their individual journeys. With that said, so last thing for you, Brian, is there anything else uh about this, whether it was the instance that you described in your blog post or this theme um, that you want to just uh, tell listeners? Yeah, I think, thank you. Um, I do have a couple of final thoughts. Because um, I, again, I think we do have an opportunity and I, I think it doesn't take anything monumental. So just following those themes, I guess I just had a couple other thoughts while we were talking about this that I wanted to share. I think one of the other small steps that everyone can take, everybody, regardless of you know which minority group, which culture um, you identify with, which race you identify with, I think one of the simplest and easiest things to start with is just to look in the mirror and own who you are and where you come from, right? So if I looked in the mirror, as hard as it would be, I just need to say, okay, here I am, I'm a middle-aged, white man of privilege. That's where I'm coming from. That's my starting place. And then from there, I think it's important to then say, okay, I can't expect to learn everything overnight, but what can I do to enhance my ability to serve the people that I'm going to see out in the clinic? And again, when you look back at that exhaustive list of all the populations that we're called to respect on that first principle in our code of ethics, there's a lot of areas where we can where we can really um, enhance our performance and our abilities. But I'm not saying you have to be able to do, be competent in all those areas now. I think if you can start with one and then expand your repertoire over time, I think that's, you know, it really creates kind of a, some momentum and a domino effect. And before you know it, you're a lot better at it than when you started. So just to come back, I think it's important to really own kind of your position and your privilege before you go into progressing your your journey in cultural competence and for me something simple that i've learned is just to, to to really evaluate that and own it and just bring that to the table when you're trying to learn because you need to just accept that that's going to create some barriers at some point it's going to reveal some of your inherent bias 
but then you need to be able to find ways to work beyond that. And it takes a lot of intentionality. And then the other thing that I don't think is going to be revealing to many people who listen now, but as a profession, you know, the statistics are pretty strong that we're not a very diverse profession. Um, we have a long way to go in that regard. But I think if you're an educator or you're a clinician or you're a manor, manager or an administrator, if you see somebody who identifies with a minority uh, group and they're really someone who has potential, who has the, the, the same level of ambition, this is a really important moment where we need to promote those people and we need to, to create opportunities for them, whether it's nominating them for an award, whether it's putting them in a position of influence, whether it's creating a leadership um, avenue for them. Because if we're going to increase our diversity as a profession, we need people kind of above to reflect the people who are going to come in. If people don't come into the profession and see people that they can relate to that are like them, then it's going to be hard for them to want to assimilate into a profession like that. So again, start small, look around, um, kind of appraise where you are and, you know, do simple things. If you're a clinician and you have people who consistently come to you to, um, to complete their shadow hours to apply for school, specifically try to, you know, be more encouraging of people who may be of my different minority groups so that they can um, be encouraged that they are welcome in our profession, even though they may not see as many people that look um, like them. And if you, again, if you're a manager or a leader, look for those people who, who may be doing great work and who may be good people to appoint so that again, we have more representation, not only for our profession to grow, but to reflect the patients that we all serve um, in very diverse ways out there in the clinic. Brian, thank you so much for this conversation and, and joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. And I just am so grateful for everyone who took time to listen um, to this discussion. To read Brian's APTA Perspectives blog post, Advancing Inclusion in the Classroom and Beyond, visit APTA.org and use the search tool. For more APTA podcasts like this one, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Thanks for listening.